We will turn for our scripture reading this morning to Romans chapter 5, where Paul speaks of uh, the wages of sin, which is death, and how death entered the world, and how Christ Jesus uh, delivered us from death. So reading from verse 12 uh, to verse 21, the end of chapter 5, and uh, this is one of the key texts where we see that the Apostle Paul sees Christ as a second Adam, where the first Adam fell into sin and death and cast the whole race into sin and death. The second Adam, by one act of righteousness, uh, delivered us from sin and death. This is God's holy word today for us. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, Abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace in the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and uh, we see in that text, right, that Adam, the first Adam in the garden, was a type of the one who was to come. Adam's sin which was imputed and spread through all the human race, uh, that one act leads to death, is in parallel, contrasted with, the one act of righteousness of Christ Jesus. So we are turning now to our Belgic Confession of Faith. You can find this in the back of your Psalter hymnal. We're, we're moving through our confession at a little more rapid clip, not going article by article. So we're taking two articles on the Incarnation, as it were. Article 18... Um, which is on uh, the biblical understanding of the Incarnation, and Article 19, which explains in particular how these two natures, the divine and the human, uh, together are in Christ. Only Article 19, uh, for the sake of space, was printed in our bulletin, and we'll have a little more focus on that. But I do want to read Article 18 as well. So, uh, these are a bit lengthy, so I will just read them and we'll listen along and follow if you have uh, your hymnal open. 
So then we confess that God fulfilled the promise which he had made to the early fathers by the mouth of his holy prophets when he sent his only and eternal son into the world at the time set by him. The son took the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man, truly assuming a real human nature with all its weaknesses except for sin. Being conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit without male participation. And he has not only assumed human nature as far as the body is concerned, but also a real human soul, in order that he might be a real human being. For since the soul had been lost as well as the body, he had to assume them both, to save them both together. Therefore we confess against the heresy of the Anabaptists, who deny that Christ assumed human flesh from his mother, that he shared the very flesh and blood of children, that he is fruit of the loins of David, according to the flesh, born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, fruit of the womb of the Virgin Mary, born of a woman, the seed of David, a shoot from the root of Jesse, the offspring of Judah, having descended from the Jews according to the flesh, from the seed of Abraham. For he assumed Abraham's seed and was made like his brothers, except for sin. In this way, he is truly our Emmanuel, that is, God with us. And we see in that article the very many footnotes, if you're looking in the Psalter hymnal. Um, So there is a lot of scripture there incorporated and, and summarized and drawn together. And we'll also look at Article 19 today. We believe that by being thus conceived, the person of the Son has been inseparably united and joined together with human nature, in such a way that there are not two sons of God, nor two persons, but two natures united in a single person, with each nature retaining its own distinct properties. Thus, the divine nature has always remained uncreated, without beginning of days or end of life, filling heaven and earth. His human nature has not lost its properties, but continues to have those of a creature. It has a beginning of days, it is of a finite nature, and retains all that belongs to a real body. And even though he, by his resurrection, gave it immortality, that nonetheless did not change the reality of his human nature. For our salvation and resurrection depend also on the realities of this body. But these two natures are so united together in one person that they are not even separated by his death. So then when he committed to his father, when he died, was a real human spirit which left his body. But meanwhile, his divine nature remained united with his human nature even when he was lying in the grave. And his deity never ceased to be in him just as it was in him when he was a little child, though for a while it did not show itself as such. These are the reasons why we confess him to be true God and true man, true God in order to conquer death by this power, and true man that he might die for us in the weakness of his flesh. Well, if you did open your Psalter hymnal, I will just encourage you to keep it open to those pages back there. We will be uh, flipping around uh, a little bit this morning and uh, looking at some different uh, texts. Um, Today, uh, as we turn to these articles on the Incarnation and the Two Natures, uh, one of the things, and the first thing we need to pay attention to, is that God's work of salvation is 
entirely focused in the work of Christ Jesus. Just glancing back on the page of our Belgic Confession in the hymnal, um, in Article 16 and 17, we learned last week of uh, very rapidly God's initiative and response to the fall. So, the doctrine of creation and fall of man in Article 14, the doctrine of original sin that this corruption spread to all humanity in Article 15, in Article 16, or Article in 16 and 17, talk about how God responded to that. He sought out Adam, and he promised to Adam uh, this work of salvation. He comforted him, promised him his son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent and to make him blessed. The entirety of the Old Testament is just zoomed past as we go from Genesis to uh, the birth of Christ, the incarnation. We move from promise to fulfillment. And we see that still, that connection with our Old Testament promises is a crucial part of what we believe about the incarnation. The beginning of Article 18, which we read, So then we confess that God fulfilled the promise which He had made to the early fathers. Um, the unity of the Old and New Testament is one of the central themes of our confession. And it's an important theme of the Reformed tradition. If you've spent many years in the Reformed Church, or um, maybe have not spent a lot of time in other churches, this might seem obvious to you. Well, of course God made promises in the Old Testament that He fulfilled in the New Testament. But this is really something we shouldn't take for granted. Um, it was hotly debated and contested at the time of the Reformation. The Anabaptists, who are referenced here, uh, rejected the teaching of the Old Testament. And they were following a heresy of the early church in that, uh, the, the Gnostic churches, which basically said, the Old Testament creator God is a different God. We believe in the, the spiritual God of the New Testament, New Testament love versus Old Testament wrath of God, for instance. And today, under the, the influences of dispensationalism, which tends to tear apart the Bible, uh, progressive um, liberal theology, which tends to turn the Bible into a bunch of human works, right? Uh, pitting Old and New Testament spiritualities, faiths against one another. We confess the unity of God's Word. We confess the unity of God's redemptive purposes. And that's really the foundation for the Reformed doctrine of the covenant. And that's one of the things that is central to our Reformed tradition. So we don't want to take this for granted. And as you look forward, so that's sort of looking back in the context in the confession. As you look forward, if you were to turn the page and see Article 20, the justice and mercy of God in Christ. Article 21, the atonement, also about Christ's work. Uh, 22 and 23 are about the righteousness of faith the justification of sinners, and the sanctification of sinners. Those are all closely focused to the work of Christ. And Article 25 and 26 are on how Christ fulfilled the law and on the intercession of Christ. That's the entirety of our confession's teaching on salvation. And you see how Christ-centered it is. It's really focused on the person and work of Christ. So the scriptures teach us that the eternal Son of God took on human flesh and became incarnate. Our confession uses and alludes to uh, the language of the book, uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You see, Christ Jesus there, the apostle is referring to the eternal Son of God, who was in glory, and willingly accepted, entered into covenant with his Father to save a race of redeemed men and women. So he took on the form of a servant. The Son of God existed eternally. And of course, therefore, existed before he took on human flesh. So that's one crucial teaching of Scripture that is central to this doctrine of the Incarnation. We see similar language in John's Gospel, right? Um, Talking about, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God. The Word is placed there at the moment of creation. In the past tense, he was there with the Father, he's equal with the Father, he is God, but he is distinct. He is with the Father. Two persons of the Trinity there are discussed. And 14, 13 verses later, John writes, And this word, this eternal word, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, in the early church, uh, there was a good deal of, of wrangling and wrestling. From the very beginning, of course, Christ was worshipped. I remember in the upper room, uh, doubting Thomas, right, falls before him and says, My Lord and my God, worships him as God. And Jesus receives and accepts that worship that only God could receive and accept. So there was no doubt among the church that Jesus was to be worshipped. But how do we move from this monotheistic, there is one God, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, to the New Testament understanding of the Trinity and the Incarnation. It was uh, tempting to try to keep uh, distinct and sort of separated from one another the divine and the human. You remember we taught about uh, creation, the creation of man. And we talked about there really is the creator and the creature. This absolute distinction. And here we're talking about a God-man who is both creature and creator at once. One temptation is, is to view this in sort of a rational way. And that the Greek mind to make sense of it, to, to comprehend it. But remember, we confessed in Article 1 that God is incomprehensible. And so one important thing to start with when we reflect on the incarnation is the understanding of mystery. Right? When you try to explain this entirely, when you try to comprehend it, wrap your mind around it, you will fall into error. Another thing here in the early church was that the Greek mind viewed this as an abomination. (laughs) The good thing about the divine and divinity and deity in the abstract, as Greeks tended to think in the ancient world, the Greek philosophy, was that it didn't change. Plato's forms were so lovely because they weren't soiled and, and shadowy and shifting. They were fixed and solid. They were secure. And they were beautiful and perfect. We know that what is perfect cannot change. Right? It can't get any better. It can't get any worse. And so the Greek mind says, A God-man, what on earth are you thinking? How could a God-man save me? He's corrupted. He died. He bled. And so the early church really wrestled with this. 
Uh, There was one view, and there were many views, many attempts that were tried to summarize the teaching of Scripture on the Incarnation, and a lot of missteps. That's how the church learns and formulates and clarifies its teaching, really by rejecting problematic ways of speaking about God and the Son of God. Uh, the, The Anabaptists that are referred to here really pick up and run with the ancient church teaching of the Gnostics. And the Gnostics tended to to pose very Greek fashion, a a stark contrast between matter and spirit. Matter was evil and spirit was good. And so when they thought of an incarnation, when they thought of Jesus, they thought it was this divine spirit that sort of slipped in and either inhabited a human body and so remained distinct and separate, kept a sort of decent amount of distance from it. Uh, And so you would get some uh, discussion of Uh, the baby shooting through the channel of the virgin's uh, womb (laughs) and and the spirit of God, the son, the word, just darting into it just as it got outside that dirty, messy womb. Or, even worse, were some that said it only looked like he had flesh. These are those who say that he just appeared to be uh, human. And it was sort of a ghost-like progression. Against all of these paths, the scriptures and the church, over a period of 150 years, really, from 325 at the Council of Nicaea up to Chalcedon and beyond, 451, wrestled with this and said, no, he's fully God and fully man. He, everything that God needed to redeem and deliver from sin and death and corruption, every aspect of human nature, our body and our soul, had to be assumed. So this is a line from the ancient church from uh, Article 18. For since the soul had been lost as well as the body, he had to assume them both to save them both together. Our souls are fallen. So Jesus had to have a, a human soul. Our bodies are fallen. He had to have a human body. He assumed everything he redeemed. So this begins... And this next season of our church life will celebrate with a, a supernatural conception. The virgin birth, it's not so much a virgin birth, it's a virgin conception. There is no human father. So a human egg of the line of David is through the power of the Holy Spirit. For looking forward to our Old Testament text this morning, Genesis 18. Nothing is impossible with God. Is how the Spirit works to bring full human life to the virgin's egg. In the spirit of a Reformed confession, in our view of Scripture, um, our confession gives a lot of biblical references here. So, the burden of this article is really to teach against the view of the Anabaptists. And remember, our author, Guido de Bray, who wrote this in 1561, about seven years later, 1568, will be burned as a stake because the church thinks Reformed Christians are Anabaptists. So one of our uh, burdens of this confession is that we are not Anabaptists. And as we have already said, we confess the creeds, the ancient creeds of the apostles in Nicaea and Athanasius. I'll come back to the Athanasian creed. Now, Article 19 about the two natures really picks up another historical debate of the Protestant Reformation. And that's really our discussion with the Lutherans about how humanity and deity uh, are are both distinct and united in one person. Two natures in one person. 
Uh, we really don't have time to go into the historical aspect of that, but I think it's worth us being aware of these two articles are really addressing two current lively topics of debate that had their foundations in the ancient Christian tradition. One of my favorite texts is alluded to here, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why did Jesus, why did God have to become man to save man? Because what we really needed was someone to die in our place. And, as well, we'll see this also in our confession later, someone to live in our place, someone to obey in our place. We need both of these things, and both of them require full humanity. Earlier in Hebrews chapter 2, there is this line that would just make a Greek head explode. We were talking about perfection earlier. It said, he had to be made perfect through his suffering. Think of that. The eternal Son of God had to be made perfect. What did He lack? Well, the profound claim of the Gospel is that He lacked the ability to save sinners until He took on human flesh. We don't view this as an imperfection in the deity, but we do view it as a mysterious sense in which once God decided to act to save the fallen human race, it required Him to make this greatest of sacrifices. So Jesus is a descendant of of David. He is born of the woman, born under the law. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. That birth under the law is very important. And this was in the background of Romans chapter 5. Right? All these men died between Adam and Moses, even though there wasn't a law that says, when you sin, you die. And when Moses comes along, God publishes a law. He writes the first few lines with his own finger. And that law says, when you sin, you die. And Jesus was born under that law. Jesus was born under that covenant which promised death to sinners. That's why the grave couldn't hold him, because he did not sin. Like us in every way, but without sin. This brings us, um, again, um, well, well, briefly, just let me say, as we transition to Article 19, the... um, This question of why Jesus had to take on human flesh has been asked throughout the history of the church. St. Anselm is a medieval church uh, teacher, and he wrote this famous book, Why God-Man? Why the God-Man? Cur Deus Homo, uh, one of the classic works of uh, the Christian faith, Christian theology and doctrine. And so when we turn to Article 19... We want to be mindful of of this question. And and I'm just going to point your attention briefly. We won't read it in detail. A little bit ahead to the Heidelberg Catechism in page 874 of our Psalter hymnal. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? Can we make this payment ourselves? Certainly not. We're sinners. We only add to the debt more every day. Can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No. The blood of goats and bulls might point to the need for blood, for sacrifice. But it's not equal to a human life. The one who is guilty must pay. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we then look for? Question 15. One who is a true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also true God. 
In other words, the deity was required to save the human race. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Because God's justice requires that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for its sin, but a sinner could never pay for others. Why must he also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Then who is this mediator, true God, and at the same time, a true and righteous man? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is given to us for our complete deliverance and righteousness. The Holy Gospel tells me this. So this is the good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, that the God-man has come to bear our sins. Um, in conclusion, and this has obviously been a, a very rapid tour, but uh, you know, before I move to the conclusion, again, I want to invoke this understanding of mystery. We do not, nor can we comprehend how two natures can be united in one person. The best we can do is is draw sort of a boundary around this. And referring back now not to the Catechism, but to the Athanasian Creed, there is just this wonderful discussion, and I'll read this, and this is something to to meditate on more than perhaps fully comprehend. Article 29 and following, It is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is the true faith that we believe and confess, that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. He is man from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely man, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and man, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not, by the blending of his essence. Jesus is not a God-man smoothie. It's not all whipped up. It remains distinct, but by the unity of his person. For just as one man is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and man. So the analogy there, right, is our human nature, which we acknowledge to be Body and soul, right? Material and immaterial. And these two things reside in one person. In fact, one person is made up necessarily of both of these. And so the divine mediator is made up necessarily of humanity and divinity. He suffered for our salvation, descended to hell, arose from the dead on the third day. This is the Catholic faith. So, coming back to Romans chapter 5, we needed a God-man who through one act of obedience, one act of righteousness, could redeem all those in the race. Romans 5 speaks comprehensively, right? It is not as though everyone is redeemed. We know that from many other clear teachings of Scripture. But all those who believe in Him, all those who are united to Christ by faith, are risen with Him from the dead. There is this important line that when our bodies become immortal in glory, that is, unable to die, confirmed in holiness and righteousness, unable to sin, we aren't becoming divine. We may draw closer to God. We may share a property that God has who also may not sin and may not die. But this doesn't require the transformation. And sometimes we, some of our Eastern brothers and sisters in particular, speak of the, the divinization 
As though to be saved is to become divine. But that's not true. And it's important why it's not true. Because man as created in the garden before he sinned was created to be confirmed in righteousness. In other words, it is part of our human nature to live in fellowship with God eternally. We aren't inherently mortal creatures. We are inherently designed for glory. That is human. And that is something that our creaturely humanity can itself aspire to, of course, only through faith in Christ alone. Let's pray. Merciful God, we thank you for the great blessing, the great mystery of your Son taking on human flesh, humbling himself, suffering, dying, obedient once and for all, that one act of righteousness by which the grace of justification has come to us all and removed the sin and curse and condemnation of our fall. We praise you. We rejoice in your kindness, your goodness, and your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.